County. And at that wedding, she had asked several of her friends from Colorado to be a part with her, but she also went way back to preschool when we were in California. And uh, she asked a girl that she had known, her name is Rebecca Mueller, or used to be Rebecca Mueller, we just call her Becca now. Uh, and she asked if, if Becky would take part in this with her. Well, she lives in California, she's a teacher. It, it's just hard to put it all together. But when the time was over, I mean, when I looked at how much Becky had given to my daughter, it was over 10 full days of attention to her, helping her get ready for the wedding. Uh, more than that, she flew out twice. I think that was on her own expense. And, and, and I was trying to think of, you know, how does somebody ask, of such, uh, ask such a favor of a friend? Well, I don't know if Becca was specifically asked, but I do know this, that she had come out twice. She came out for the bachelorette party and spent a weekend, and then she came out for an entire week and, and spent all that time just helping my daughter, Stacy for the wedding. That's a good friend. And, 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 and you say, well, how do you know? Well, I sort of know because of the amount of input and the amount of friendship and the amount of help that my daughter received from this gal that she has known since she was three but has been away from for almost 17 years. Uh, you, you put all that together and you say, well, those two were BFFs. Now, for those of you who aren't as text-oriented as I am, that means best friends forever. And, and those two will probably be best friends forever no matter where they live. We're talking right now about a friendship with God. And it's not a matter of if that friendship is available or not. It is, but it's more how does it develop? How does, how does it grow from a, from a seed to a, to a lifelong Actually, eternal friendship. And we've been looking in the Old Testament at a man by the name of Abraham. And the reason we chose him is because it says both in the Old and the New Testaments, both halves of the Bible, both times it says he is called God's friend. When someone's called God's friend and everybody seems to agree, it's worth listening to. It's worth looking at and trying to pick up what are the building blocks that Abraham gave so that he could be called God's friend for generations after. And as we've been looking at these, we see that God's friend has certain friendship building blocks. The first was we see that he listens to God. In other words, God was trying to communicate with him, and Abraham specifically listened at at very key times. The next is that he talks to God. There's a two-way communication going on there, and there's two times of prayer that Abraham is in in which it's a real conversation. One is speaking, and then the other is listening, and then the, the second one speaks, and the other one listens. Next, he watches God. And we watch Abraham for a period of about 40, dec- uh, 40 years, four decades, as he, watch, he watches God not just uh, be telling him and directing him, but more providing for him. And Abraham does some amazing things that you would say he shouldn't have done. Then he believes God. That means God gives him promises, but the promises don't necessarily show up immediately. They're not fulfilled right away. But he continues to live as if they will. 
And he does not give up on God's promises. And now we come to one which is probably the most difficult at all, and you probably don't experience this much in your own friendships. We see this more as an authority role, but Abraham also obeys God when he hears his command. Uh, he says, yes, Lord, I will do what you are asking, even if it appears that you were asking too much. God asks Abraham in their friendship to obey his command. And God asks his friend to do something that today we would consider immoral, even gruesome by today's standards. God's friend finds himself obeying God. So Abraham faces the same challenge I think we face today. Does my friendship with God include obeying him? We were singing that song about trusting him, believing the promises that he made, but does my friendship with God also follow through in obeying him? Now, some of you have come from uh, Christian traditions where all they talk about is obeying. And you don't have a friendship. You live in fear that he's going to pounce on you if you do anything wrong. Well, in a friendship with God, the issue is, do you have many other friendships where you are asked to obey what that other friend does? It's a father-son relationship now. It's like... Uh, my father would say, you know, Jim, you got to get this done, and until you do, nothing else happens. I had to obey, reluctantly, but I had to obey. In the same way, our friendship with God has to let him be an authority to us. And we understand that he's not asking us to do anything that is so out of reason or, or, or so impossible that it cannot be done. That's what you have to understand about this, this thing called faith. Faith will have tests, and God will test his friends. And again, that may be foreign to, to you, but each of us experiences, I think, tests all the time. We're asked if we can meet a deadline. That's a test. We, we're told that we have to make this payment by such and such a date. That's a test. We're, we're told, can we be at the right place at the right time to pick up a friend? That's a test. Will we show up? Abraham believes God when he promises him that he will have a son. But now that that son has been born, and now perhaps a young teenager, and Abraham has been walking with God for about 40 years, can Abraham still believe God when he asks a huge request of his heavenly father? It says this, Genesis 22, uh, verse 1. Sometime later, in other words, after uh, Isaac was born, his son, uh, through Sarah. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And then it, it goes on to say this in verse 2. Here's the test. Abraham, take your son. Notice the language here. Your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. I get about going to Moriah, that last half. That's scandalous. Sacrifice him there. Now, we, we hear that command, and, and, and I would love to hear the first half and not the second half. And we have to say it's not just we as Christians who, who believe, what, sacrifice your son? God, you can't be asking that. But even our secular culture, which has, I believe, a lower value on human life 
than, than the Christian culture does. Uh, even our secular culture would say that's just barbaric. E- even as our secular culture looks at the sacrificial system where Abraham offers to God animals, uh, and, and, and we hear that and it makes us wince today. But God asks for this son who is a miracle given to Abram in his old age and Sarah long after uh, she was, uh, long after her organs were working that way. He says, now this one who is a miracle is now to become a human sacrifice. Let that sink in. I, I think of three children that I raised. God never asked that. In fact, I kept thinking, he was, he was telling me, give more attention to your children. That was his command to me. Certainly not to offer them up. And yet it seems that when this is, uh, command is given, Abram is not shocked by God's command. Uh, that, and and, and, and you've got to understand just a little bit of the history. Uh, as they dig up ancient Carthage in North Africa, and it was really run by the Lebanese or the Phoenicians. Uh, it was one of their colonies. Uh, we, we think of it as uh, Helen of Troy and how Carthage was involved there. But as you think of ancient Carthage, uh, they found stone tablets that show little babies in a bowl, just about ready to be offered up, to be left as human sacrifices. Both Two of the tribes that Abraham sort of wandered through as he was in Canaan had this god called Molech. And Molech would have children pass through the fire, as it says. In other words, people would send their children uh, into a burning fire as a sacrifice to their god. What was the purpose? The purpose was to appease God. If you give up your child, then I promise you that nothing bad will happen to you. Now, as you think of that culture, you you got to say, man, that's detestable. But we have records of this being done up to the second century A.D. And I want to say this. We also know that it has been done in cultures up into the 20th century. We know that in Asia and Africa. So for those of you who are Westerners and say this would never happen, just understand it would. Now, here's the second thing. It's not that we want you to offer a child sacrifice. Abram, we want you to offer your child as a sacrifice. Then it says it, your only child. The only child you had from Sarah. The child who was a miracle. The child that you have raised for probably the last 14 or 15 years to young adulthood. And that's the one we want you to. Just don't take any child. We, I want you to take your child. So you think about this and as absurd as it may be, Abraham's going to have to do something, right? He's going to have to do something. Now, many of you know how this account goes, and and so you're you're way ahead of me, and I understand that. But some of you would say, something as absurd as this cannot be true. I just want you to know, wherever the story of Abraham is told, this is always a part of it. What happens in a test? 
Well, the first thing is, if tests do anything, going back to school or whatever, if tests do anything, uh, they help us measure what we have learned. Uh, this test is a measure to the extent that Abraham believes is God. Test measure. So there has to be a response. And we see in verse 3 what that response is. Do you see that? It goes this way. It says, uh, early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey, and he took with him two servants and his son Isaac. Now it's really getting hard to swallow, isn't it? In other words, the very next morning after he got this command, Abram obeys God. The donkey, the servants, and Isaac, knowing what God has asked of him. So Isaac travels with his father, and Abraham's uh, answer is immediate obedience to what God asks. And they find themselves making the journey. And when they finally get to this section of current Israel where uh, <clears throat> where they were told to go, then uh, a poignant moment between a father and a son, a father and his only son, as it says, uh, is revealed to us. I'm in uh, <clears throat> Genesis and chapter 22, and I just want to read this because it's a discussion or a, a dialogue that goes on here. And I'm starting at chapter uh, 22, verse 5. Uh, he says to his servants, once they're in that location, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there up that mountain that God has told him to go up. We will worship, and then notice this, we will return. He is believing that they will return even though he knows what God is asking. So Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he placed it on his son Isaac. Dads, isn't that why we have kids? Okay. Uh, They've got to grow up and do some of the hard work. But then he takes the fire and then he takes the knife. And the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father... Yes, my son, Abram replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Where's the lamb? And Abram answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. I think God wants us to be the most personal Interaction between a father and a son that he could possibly describe in just a few verses. I think God intends that we understand this was not a bad son, that this was not a, a, a son that he was neglecting. This was his son whom he loved. And a son who was smart enough to ask the questions. You know, Dad, I've done this with you. Know, we've done this a lot of times together. But something's missing this time. I, I'm carrying the wood. You got the knife. You got the fire. Where's the lamb? And all he hears is the Lord will provide. Um, so together they prepare the sacrifice. And then the father lays his only son on the altar. It says that he actually ties him up like he ties the lamb. And then he raises the knife. Now, some of you have seen pictures of it looks like Abraham was going to go like this to his son who was lying down. But it was probably more, and I know this is gruesome, like this. 
because that's how a sacrifice was made. And he goes all the way through to the point of picking up the knife. Think about this. We understand about a friendship, don't we? We understand. We get listening. We get talking to one another. We get watching as somebody else. You know, we observe how what someone's character is like and, and power and things like that. And we get believing a friend for the best to come out of that friend. But in a few important friendships, obedience is the measurement of believing. And it is with God. Can I ask what current relationships are going on in your life where a loving and obedient deed is probably more important than all the words you can say? What relationship are you in where follow-through is more important than just having good intentions? How do your actions build trust and respect with others? This is about actions, not just heart, but the fact that he's going to obey God with his actions. And so at that point where it says he is reaching out and about ready to take the knife to his son, this is this moment. It says in verse 10 and 11, Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham, I'm sure, gladly says, What, Lord? Stop me, please. It doesn't say that, but he's a dad. And the angel answers as God steps in. Do not do anything to him. Now I know, in other words, you have taken the test and you have passed the test. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son and once again your only son. When you put in your only son, it means this is the one you treasure. You're not favoring one one over the other. This is the one. So Abraham then turns around, it says in verse 12, and he he looks up and there in the thicket he sees a ram that's caught by its thorns. A a very uh, highly unlikely thing to happen. I don't know how many sheep you've seen around thickets, but basically they don't hang around thickets and they don't get caught in their thickets and they probably don't get their horns caught in thickets. This is a God thing. It's not a coincidence. God has said, I am going to provide uh, the, the sacrifice in such a way that Abraham would know it was me who brought it to him. So Abraham completes the sacrifice with the ram and he walks down the mountain with Isaac. And just like he said to the servants, we will return. He returns home with a blessing from God. That blessing is out of you and out of Isaac will come a great nation. And today we have that nation that we call the Jews. Now they are not the largest nation, but they are God's chosen people, God's chosen nation. Now, I I, want to take that just a little bit further because here's the thing. We we say anybody who is a Jew, just because they were born Jewish, anyone who is a Jew is a part of God's chosen people. And and I'm not belittling that, but I'm putting something higher than that. 
uh, because I think there is something that's come in that's higher than that. Abraham was not honored by God because of his gene pool. And the Jews are not necessarily chosen just because of their gene pool. Abraham is honored by God because of his friendship with God. Do you, do you, do you get that? It's not his gene pool, it's his faith pool. Now, it's, you know, I'm not saying the Jews aren't still his chosen people, but I'm saying we're in it in the same way Abraham was, we're just like Abraham in a way, if you read it through Romans and other places, we're, we're like Abraham in that we have chosen, uh, as, as we have come to know God, we have chosen to, to develop that friendship with him and have that relationship with him. And, and he has offered it and we've said yes to it. And in a way, we have come into Abraham's faith pool. We are believing in the same way that Abraham has done. And it's not by birth, but it's by faith. Here in the United States today, we value our freedom. And, and that's not a, necessarily a bad thing. But in the kingdom of God, in other words, that faith pool of Abraham, um, we value and we treasure faith, I think, at least as much, and I hope more than our freedom. And I, I, I want to say this, whatever season you may be in in your life, uh, God is talking to you, I think, about how are you going to be my friend and show the faith that I desire so that your faith will be measured and your faith will be proven. When I say proven, that means it, it grows. It's not just measured, it's not static and you've got this much, like, like you take a... a an ACT test and it puts you at this grade level. No, it, it, it's like it, it's a it's a moving and and throbbing thing. Either it's growing or it's static or or, or it's decreasing. And and here, uh, what he's saying is, I want your faith to be active in every season of your life. I want your friendship to be shown in your obedience to me, no matter what phase of life that you're in. Can I start? with my phase I just turned 66 and now the government calls me a senior citizen I am so ticked I mean I'm still going to try out for the NBA before you know and I'm going to do all these things while I'm still alive but my government says Jim you're a senior citizen and we want you to you know register here and do this and do that so okay the government says I'm a senior citizen. My kids have been saying it since they were born. So they must be right. Okay, so I'm a senior citizen. We have two things for us senior citizens. We have an inheritance, which may be a lot or may be little. And we have a legacy. These are the two things we can leave our children. Now, what's the inheritance? The inheritance is, is, is the money and the stuff. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, uh, I heard that uh, one of the great Wall Street gazillionaires is only leaving $3 billion, children to, uh, $3 billion to each of his children. You don't want to get that mixed up. He's only living, leaving $3 billion to each of his children. Oh, those poor kids. Oh, my gosh. How are they going to survive? Um, <clears throat> That's the inheritance. What's the difference between the inheritance and the legacy 
And how does faith and obedience to God fit in? I want you to know that, yes, your kids will get your money, your mementos, your collections, your pictures, and especially your money. But of greater value of what you can leave them is the legacy. You being here this morning says that you have some faith. Or you were dragged by somebody who does. And I challenge you to take this test in the years ahead and pray about what's the best way to leave a legacy of faith that you pass down to your children and to those around you and the generation that follows them. For you seniors, obedience to God says you're stepping into the kingdom of God and what's most important for the next generation is your legacy. Let's talk about empty nesters. I thought I was in that till the United States government said, no, I'm a senior citizen. Your children are out of school, and uh, and they're sort of away, and you don't have that much time to, you know, they don't want you around that much, let's be honest. Okay, they have their own lives and their own careers and their own relationships that they are fostering. So, for those of you who are empty nesters, with less time to the kids, there's more time for you to do those things that you've always wanted to do. What time and money are you investing into the kingdom of God? Expanding it and strengthening it so that when you uh, have more freedom with the time and the money that God has given you, something will be uh, growing within the kingdom of God. For those of you who are parents, actively raising your children at home, uh, you know that... uh, I know that you know what they want from you, but the test really for you is to be the daily living example of faith as a follower of Jesus. Um, Whatever it may be, these are the years in which you are developing the legacy for your children. These are the legacy building years. So what do you want them to remember? Have your children ever caught you praying? Have your children ever asked you about your giving? Have your children ever talked to you about, Dad, why did you spend so much time with that that person that has so many needs? And the answer would be, God laid that person on my heart. Those of you who are parents, those of you who are single and students, it is now at this stage that your faith can influence your friends. Uh, many of whom do not share your faith. How can your faith help you determine what your career will be and what your partner will be and and your working life? How will these, what will these look like? Because you, you know, it's your faith pool that's being invested at this time. I've been to two high school reunions, the 20th and the 40th. Uh, the 50th is supposed to come in two years and I'm, I'm going to try to make that too. And, and I tell you, everybody there has gotten to look so old. It is unbelievable. But as I went to those, thinking that I still look like my high school graduation picture, um, uh, you can only talk about high school and your exploits in high school for so long, and it's about 20 seconds. It's only about 20 seconds. You go on more than 20 seconds, 
and they're bored. Not only are they bored, it says, is that all you can talk about? Most of these people that recognize me and know me want to talk about the following 50 years. They want to know what's happened. But as I went to my 40th and I was looking at these friends, people that I knew as a student, uh, almost all of them said, Jim, something happened to you in your senior year. You got religion and, and things began to change. We didn't see you so much or things like that. And, uh, and then they said, then we heard that you went out not to be a businessman, but to be a pastor. And, and I said, yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and, and they said, you know, we, everyone that was willing to talk about that, we wish we would have seen you more in our senior year. But what we saw, we liked more than what we saw before. <laughs> and they would talk about that. You students, this is a great time for you in your lives. A great time. Obey God in it. So here's what we're talking about. I would like to hear from you this week. You can phone me. You can text me. Yes, I get texts. You can email me. You can't tweet me yet. You can drop in or you can take me to lunch. But how is your faith? We were talking about, uh, you know, uh, trust. but, But how is your faith being tested in obedience these days? I would just love to be hearing from you and talking with you about what it means to be following God at this season of your life and how you are trying to walk in obedience to him. And, and let me uh, just understand that what, what he's doing is just what he did with Abraham. He's measuring your faith and he's, uh, he's increasing your faith or, or proving your faith. And if you think, you know, as I look back at Abraham, he lived 3,500 years ago. How can anybody who lived 3,500 years ago have any effect on me today? Let me just take you forward because there's two things that we've talked about with Abraham that are also true of Jesus whom we follow. The first is this. God has only one son. God has only one son and God gives that son for us. There was no ram that was provided for the substitute. God gave his son. So when you think and you see that phrase, I want you to take your son, your only son, God knew exactly what he was thinking and exactly what would be happening in the future. He says, I'm going to provide this perfect sacrifice. You know, that And that perfect sacrifice is my son, and I'm giving it for you. This is God's substitute for you. The ram was God's substitute for Isaac. God proves his love for each of us, and that while we are distracted and staying away from God and would have to call ourselves sinners, Christ dies for us. The second thing is this. Faith still involves obedience to God's commands. It still involves it. Your friendship with God still has that aspect to it where obedience matters. We'll prove it, Jim. Okay, glad you asked. Good question. Glad you asked. Jesus is looking at his disciples. And it's his last night with him before he goes to his cross. And what does he tell them? You are my friends if you do what I suggest to you. No. 
He says, you are my friends if you read my mind and just begin to, you know, do these brain waves and go out and think. No, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Simple as that. It's not a concept from 3,500 years ago. It's a concept that Jesus has given us until he returns. Let's pray. Trust and obey. For each of us, one is probably more difficult than the other. But just as we gave to God this morning something that we are trusting him in, So it has also come time to give to God something that we will obey him in. Lord, people have been on my heart, some for months or years. Help me to pursue them in obedience to you. Lord, I made a promise to you some years ago, and I just can't let it go. Help me to be obedient to you. Lord, there's somebody that needs my help. I try to forget it. I I try to leave it alone. I try to be distracted and be involved in doing other things. But I am always thinking of this person who needs my help. Help me to be obedient to you. Where are you building your friendship with God? Through obedience. Father, help us to listen when you give that command to obey. And as Abraham and Jesus both obeyed you perfectly, so may we also. And we ask this in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. Let's stand.